Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Psalm 38. Take a deep breath, God. Calm down. Don't be so hasty with your punishing rod. Your sharp-pointed arrows of rebuke draw blood. My backside smarts from your canning. I've lost 20 pounds in two months because of your accusation. My bones are brittle as dry sticks because of my sin. I'm swamped by my bad behavior, collapse under gunny sacks of guilt. The, flesh and the cuts of my flesh stink and grow maggots because I've lived so badly. And now I'm flat on my face, feeling sorry for myself morning to night. All my insides are on fire. My body is a wreck. I'm on my last legs. I've had it. My life is a vomit of groans. Lord, my longings are sitting in plain sight. My groans, an old story to you. My heart's about to break. I'm a burned out case. Cataracts blind me to God and good. Old friends avoid me like the plague. My cousins never visit. My neighbors stab me in the back. My competitors blacken my name. Devoutly they pray for my ruin. But I'm deaf and mute to it all. Ears shut, mouth shut. I don't hear a word they say. Don't speak a word in response. What I do, God, is wait for you. Wait for my Lord, my God. You will answer. I wait and pray so they won't laugh me off, won't smugly shut off when I stumble. I'm on the edge of losing it. The pain in my gut keeps burning. I'm ready to tell my life, my story of failure. I'm no longer smug in my sin. My enemies are alive and in action, a lynch mob after my neck. I give out good and get evil back from God-haters who can't stand a God-lover. Don't dent me, God, my God. Don't stand me up. Hurry and help me. I want some wide-open space in my life. Thank you, Christine and Dana, for that. I wait on the edge. I wait and pray. I'm on the edge, says the psalmist. Praise the psalmist, honestly, from the place where prayer is something more than routine, more than a ritual, more than an incantation. From the edges of life, as we've talked, prayer, as we've come to learn throughout the psalms, is a persuasive, passionate, bold addressing of the Holy One. Prayer, as we've discussed this Lenten season, reveals the thoughts of our hearts in those times when we know in body and in soul we are utterly dependent. Those moments at the extremes of pain and the awe of surprise. Ironically enough, this particular prayer, from, all the, from the all-too-familiar human experience of life, not securely oriented, this prayer doesn't come from a place of feeling like everything's well, Right? but rather from a, this churning of disorientation, this being thrown off kelter, but desiring to, for something more, something new, as we heard in the last lines, is a prayer voiced by God's people in preparation for communion with Him. I don't know about you, but if you turned in your Bibles, my little ESV Bible says in Psalm 38, a Psalm of David for the memorial offering. For the memorial offering. The memorial offering which is outlined in Leviticus 2, 6, and 24, details what was not an offering to atone for sin. This wasn't an offering that was given to make, make somebody, somebody right, to, not, to make their standing before the Lord right, but rather an offering that was used to make bread. Make bread that was used to set the table for God's communion with His people through their priests. This was a prayer that was 
prayed at those who are giving for the purpose of communing with God. Take that in for just a moment. As uncomfortable as this voice of our common humanity is to hear, as uncomfortable as it is to hear with its brutal honesty of, of heart towards God's perceived inflictions, of God's perceived punishments, of the anguish of what it looks like to live in faith sometimes, of its brutal honesty at the pains caused by self-inflicted injury, our own brutal choices and brutal ways of life, or the pains caused by others, those around us who abandon us and abuse us, is nevertheless an authentic prayer offered in the middle of faith. Uh, I believe, help my unbelief kind of prayer. A Lord, according to your desire and your wisdom, have mercy on me kind of prayer. A many are the sorrows of the wicked like me, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord like me, which we added our voice to last week. God's people, long before they could even imagine the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, prayed and learned to pray through this psalm in anticipation for communion with the one to whom they boldly, if not painfully and candidly addressed. We'd be wise to enter this prayer to learn to pray with that same preparatory ambition, preparing to be welcomed to the table that God has set for us. Remember how we've been looking at the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of Lent, these seven penitential Psalms as they're called? We've used Walter Brueggemann's admittedly oversimplified sorting of both the Psalms and our experiences of daily living. We've said that life with God and others is always experienced somewhere in this flow and entanglement of being securely oriented, knowing who we are, knowing where we stand with God, with others, in life, and all those kind of places. And then all of a sudden knocked off of that painfully disoriented, taken off equilibrium, thrown into the chaos and the disturbance of not sure of who we are or where we are or whose we are or what we're supposed to do or where we're supposed to be. And then all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, at a time that we could, we could rarely anticipate or at least calendar, we're reoriented, surprisingly found somewhere new and somewhere different. What differentiates praying the Psalms from the helpful and necessary study or memorization of the Psalms is reading the ancient words of our faith family for what they are and bringing to them our life experiences in the tangle and flow of where we find ourselves in A, B, and C. How we pray the Psalms, in other words, does two things. We take what is there, the vulnerable and bold addressing of God from a point of orientation. All the Psalms find in some way they're either a Psalm of orientation, of disorientation, or reorientation. Sometimes a mixture of both in the Psalms, as we've seen already even in the, in the Psalms of Lent. But we take what's there, the, the vulnerable and bold addressing of God from a point of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And then we bring to them our own experiences of something similar whether we are praying from a point of disorientation, orientation, or reorientation. And when we let the words of the Psalms evoke, not describe a particular thing, but evoke, bring to mind images, memories, and feelings of real experiences in our lives, real experiences of orientation, disorientation, reorientation, pain and surprise and security, whether they be in real memories of our own lives, or images and memories and feelings of things in other people's lives that they might have gone through or are going through. And then give voice to what is breathed into our mind. Not just think it, 
but speak it back to God. What's felt in our hearts returning to him. That's when we're actually praying the Psalms. That's when we're not just memorizing the Psalms, which is a good thing. That's not just when we're studying the Psalms, which is a good thing. That's when we're praying the Psalms. When we, when we take what is there and we let what is there draw us into where we are and we join the voices of all those before us in history who have done the same thing before the Lord, then that's when the Psalms are actually teaching us to pray. That's when the Psalms actually become our prayer book. The Psalms, paraphrasing Brueggemann, are not used in a vacuum, but in a history where we are falling and rising, where we are knocked off our secure orientation into the discomfort of disorientation, and all of a sudden find ourselves reoriented in some place different than before. It is there in the history where God is at work ending our lives and making gracious new beginnings for us that the Psalms are prayed. The Psalms move with our experience and move us to our heart in those experiences. They may also take us beyond our own experience into the pilgrimages of our sisters and brothers. And in this way, the Psalms teach us to pray with prophetic, transformative empathy. With a way that draws us into where God is in others around us. What He's doing in their lives that we might be a part of it too. Because the truth is, every one of us, those who pray this prayer with us today, those who don't pray at all, can identify with the feelings and experiences of chaos, disorder, and disorientation in life, which are overflowing from Psalm 38. Every single human, everyone that we know, everyone that we run into, everyone here, and again, everyone not here, can identify with the disorientation. They find themselves somewhere in the midst of life thrown off, whether it's this moment now or a time in their past or a thing that they'll experience in the future. Psalm 38 is squarely fixed amid the B, the disorientation. The psalmist, like us, does not desire to be disoriented, but longs, hopes, and waits for orientation once again. He says, what do I do? What I do is I wait for you, God. Wait for my Lord, my God. You will answer. It's not a prayer from orientation, but it's a prayer longing for it, desiring it. Well, we all desire, right? It's not a prayer... It's, it's not a prayer from one who's already got there, but it's one who's been there before and wants to get back there again. Yet it is in the painful experience of being disoriented, thrown off of that secure place, where they don't need God to answer because God's always present. Or God's presence is always felt and never distant. That compels this prayer. Maybe, just maybe, it's prayer... It's a prayer of disorientation that best prepares us for communion, for our memorial offering. At least it seems some in our faith heritage have used it for such purposes. And other scholars agree with the preparatory nature of disorientation. And again, paraphrasing Brueggemann, I'm sorry to quote him all the time, but he's been helpful in this for me anyway. This evocative language, this language of hyperbolic crisis, right? What we just read in the Psalms you may have never actually said. You may never actually have felt, not specifically. You may never have, as we read in Psalm 6, right? You may never have cried so many tears that your bed is actually floating, right? That's hyperbole. That's over-the-top language. But it's over-the-top language that describes something real that's happening in the soul, right? 
If this evocative, meant to bring to mind language of hyperbolic crisis, creates between the speaker and God something that did not fully exist before, namely a genuine and public acknowledgement of disorientation, what the psalmist is saying, what the psalmist is doing, is creating with their speech, you can go ahead and leave that one up, Dylan, it's fine. Creating with their speech something visible that might have been hidden in their hearts. Maybe, maybe felt, maybe known, but until it was voiced, it wasn't visible. Until it was voiced, it was just somewhere in there, floating around in emotions and feelings. But when it's voiced, when this speech, this dislocation becomes a visible event, a revelation of the heart that now exists between the prayer and God, with this portrayal, God is compelled to notice. The psalmist teaches us that it's not that, yes, God knows our hearts, but that we have to voice our hearts. And that doing so is when and how God actually begins to work on our hearts. It's not like a, just a mathematical equation. Don't get me wrong. It's not like all of a sudden if I give voice to these things, this is what happens. But this is what our psalms teach us. That it's not enough to just think these things, but we have to say these things. Not necessarily just say it to one another, but we do say these two things together and helps hopes to encourage one another to speak to God this way. But to say these actual things, these actual things inside of us, let our hearts be open to God. The speaker says, even in an ex if it, in exaggerated terms, it is really like this. That is my situation. It is really like this. Life feels this hard. Life feels like you're punishing me, God. Life feels like my bones are brittle. Life feels like my, my flesh is stinking with magnets, that my vomits and groans are all that I know. It feels like I'm blind to anything good and that everything is against me. It, this is how it is. And this is how my, my situation. And then the listener now says, now I understand fully your actual situation in which you are at work dying to the old equilibrium that is slipping from you. Because what our disorientation reveals in our hearts, what our disorientation actually comes out of our hearts, is an old stability. Is everything old in us that's being turned over for something new. And that is what's happening in all the disorientations in life, no matter their origins or severity in the same way it's happened in all the Psalms of disorientation. It's revealing to us the old things that we cling to in us, around us, and taking off the old and putting on the new. When we experience the pains of disorientation for ourselves or others, whether in micro particulars or macro implications, whether a personal discomfort or a global crisis, we are coming to the awareness that life is not whole. That life is not whole. Indeed, the world is a dangerous, frightening place. And I am upset for myself, for my children, for my family, my friends, my fellow humans. And so, as an act of hope, I articulate this chaos to the very face of the Holy One. When we pray and our hearts are utterly revealed before God, 
where you're saying, this is how life really is, and I hate it. I want it to be different. I want it to be more. And because I want it to be more, I act in hope that it will be more in you. It's not a complaint to God. It's not a belittling of God. It's not a degrading of who God is. It's actually a trusting of God. That you're safe. Your heart's safe in Him. And that your heart actually wants what He wants, which is for the old to go and the new to come. Thus the Psalms of disorientation do their work of helping people to die completely to the old situation. The old possibility, the old false hopes, hopes, the old lines of defense and pretense to say as dramatically as possible that that is all over. That I don't want any of that anymore. I want something more and new. Or in the words of Psalm 38, don't dump me, God. My God, don't stand me up. Hurry and help me. I want some wide open space in my life. I'm tired of being closed in. I want something more, wide open space. It's in giving up to our neediness for reconciliation, our neediness for rescue, our neediness for resolve to be put back into a place of stability that prepares us to receive God's life with us and God's life for us. At least that's what the people of faith have thought for thousands and thousands of years. Now, as the psalm attests, these moments that knock us off our equilibrium, off our sure orientation, and expose our neediness and utter dependence can come from a multitude of fronts. That's what Psalm 38 helps us do. It helps us discover the origins of disorientation. So quickly, I just want to look at those in the psalms before we have a chance to pray from those in the psalm. The first source, origin of disorientation is a crisis of faith. The first two verses of Psalm 38 say, Take a deep breath. God, calm down. Don't be so hasty with your punishing rod. Your sharp pointed arrows of rebuke draw blood. My backside smarts from your caning. I've lost 20 pounds in two months because of your accusation. We talked about this before in Psalm 6. But now the origin of these moments of crisis, this disorientation, disorder, and chaos, may not be as dramatic as the language or the prayers we pray. Right? Doubt, disbelief, anger, or frustration towards God's felt treatment of you. Because that's what the psalmist is, is saying, right? God, I don't like the way you treat me. I don't like the way life feels in faith. I don't like the way faith is going right now. This life of trying to follow you is going right now. Could stem from something as mild as an unwelcome, convicting word from Scripture or another. Right? It could be I read something or someone spoke something or someone said something that pierced my heart and I just didn't like that feeling. Or, as mild as um, the observation of another's life compared to yours. Another person of faith in conversation and their story and all that they see and do and experience, whether you know them or whether you just see them on social media. Comparing and contrasting your faith with the faith of others and your life of faith with the faith, life of faith in others can cause doubt, disbelief, anger, and frustration about your life with God and your 
tension with how God is acting or not acting in your life. Certainly, the experienced tension between you and God could come from something more direct, though. The loss of someone or something you love dearly. A question of a conviction that seems disconnected from reality or even unpopular at the moment. Or even the inconsistent, harmful, and even evil actions of people, especially in authority, leaders and parents of faith. Is that your source of disorientation today? Is it a crisis of faith that leaves you knocked off your kilter? How about those around you? A neighbor, a coworker, family member, a spouse? But sometimes, as Psalm 32 leads us to face, led us to face last week, the origin of our disorientation comes from something closer to home. While God is big and everywhere, right, and even though He's intimate, sometimes this, the start is a little bit closer. It's a crisis of self. Verse 3 says, My bones are brittle as dry sticks because of my sin. I'm swamped by my bad behavior, collapsed under gunny sacks of guilt. The cuts in my flesh stink and grow maggots because I've lived so badly. And now I'm flat on my face, feeling sorry for myself morning and night. All my insides are on fire. My body is a wreck. I'm on my last legs. I've had it. My life is a vomit of groans. Lord, my longings are sitting in plain sight. My groans an old story to you. My heart's about to break I'm a burned-out case. Again, the origin of our self-inflicted wounds may not be as dramatic as the language used. Our self-pity, our broken hearts, our burned-out emotions, our continuous groaning, complaining, may stem from the simple inability to be consistent in our convictions. Just the reality of not living up to our desires for wholeness and holiness. Or maybe our propensity to repeat over and over and over again the same offenses and mistakes. Could be that those things are the cause of our angst and our disorientation. Certainly the guilt we feel can come from more explicit sources, from addictions, substantive, sexual, or self-destructive from roots of bitterness and injuries we've never addressed to God or others, from wrongs and wounds we inflict on others but perhaps do not wholly own, or even from a willful ignoring of the voice of God in moments big and small. Is that your source of disorientation today? How about those around you? A roommate, a coworker, a spouse, a child, a neighbor, a friend, an enemy. The origin of painful disorientation might be a crisis of faith or a crisis of self, but it can also originate in conflict with others from a crisis of relationships. Verse 10 says, Cataracts blind me to God and good. I'm unable to see God in others, God working through others, God in the place of neediness, like Matthew 25, remember all the way back there a few weeks ago where we started, where Jesus says he is. Old friends avoid me like the plague, cousins never visit me, neighbors stab me in the back, competitors blacken my name. 
Devoutly they pray for my ruin, but I'm deaf and mute to it all. Ears shut, mouth shut. I don't hear a word they say, don't speak a word in response. I've been utterly shut down by the offenses of others. In truth, the wounds of others are often the first thing that comes to mind when we think of actual pains and disorientation, aren't they? Interestingly, the Psalms rarely start there, though they eventually get there. There is no denying that the repercussions of living in a fallen and broken world are keenly and often felt. The origins, as before, may be as simple as a crossword from a spouse or the absent-mindedness of a friend or a parent or perhaps a difficult season of marriage, a difficult boss or coworker, getting passed up for promotion or being overlooked for an invite. Of course, the wounds of others can be more direct than that. A betrayal of confidence or covenant, bludgeoning criticism, continuous disregard for feelings, or even an outright attack on character, competence, and commitment. The truth is, people can hurt us in various ways, just as we can hurt them. Whether the blow that knocks us off our equilibrium is something subtle or a slap in the face, a buildup of small things over time, or a sudden avalanche of affliction, the pain of relationship can be a primary source of disorientation. Is this your source of disorientation today? How about those around you? How about the person right now who's a thorn in your flesh? Listen, whether the origin is a crisis of faith or a crisis of self or a crisis of relationship, eventually we all come to the edge of our neediness. Or at least that's the invitation. That's the Lenten desire. That's the move downward. It's to get to the edge of our neediness, to a place where we, like the psalmist, are ready to tell our story of failure. That's what he says. I wait and pray so they won't laugh me off, won't smugly strut off when I stumble. I'm on the edge of losing it. The pain in my gut is burning. I'm ready to tell my story of failure. I'm no longer smug in my sin. My enemies are alive and in action, a lynch mob after my neck. I've got, I give out good and give back evil from God-haters who can't stand a God-lover. Disoriented by the uncertainty and confusion of where you stand and fit with God, yourself, or others. Fully aware that daily existence is experienced amid a host of forces, internal and external, that want to take life and not give it. You know there's nothing left to do, nothing left to hide. Nothing left to do, that is, but wait and pray. With no reason to hide, you commit an act of hope by telling God how it is for you, boldly, even if hyperbolically. The psalms, psalmist frees us to be candid with God. And in doing so, you add your voice to the voice of the saints throughout history in anticipation as preparation for communion with the one you address. You're prepared for His presence as His answer to the vulnerability of your neediness. His presence as the answer to your entitlement, to your shortcomings, to your wounds utterly exposed by speaking them to Him. Can I give you a candid example of how this has worked in my life over this last season? The issues that led actually to our being here 
or it feels like, for me, a story of my failure. When I was told the building that we were in before the last seven years was closing, indeed it had already been sold without any conversation, I went through all the origins of disorientation. I was frustrated with God for letting this happen at such an inopportune time and for not giving me what I thought we deserved. I was frustrated with myself for not being more vocal about issues, for being too timid to make our desires to be a part of the conversation known, for not praying enough, for not believing enough, and then guilty for feeling entitled and embittered. I felt frustrated with Greg, betrayed even for what felt like a self-serving decision that seemed to disregard seven years of friendship and conversation and community. All that over a worship space, a building we had next to no investment in, But until I could articulate the disorientation candidly to God, I was bound by it. Until I could articulate the disorientation candidly to God, I was bound by it. Bound to repeat the same anguish day in and day out. The same place of pain day in and day out. I kept going over and over again to myself and to, only occasionally with, sometimes just to, kind of throwing up on others. Sometimes in actual conversation with others, some of you in this room the pains of my experience, saying and assuming all kinds of things that may or may not have been valid. And on top of that, I was completely ignoring the fact that Greg was just as disoriented as I was, if not more so. That their faith family, as small as it was, was at a place of complete disorientation. Think of all that they had to give up and go through to be at such a place, to be at an end, an end unwanted, and not desired, plus the uncertainty of what comes next, if anything comes next. Only when I could be candid with God and hear the draw of the Spirit to wait, to wait for His presence, only when I could pray from the edge did my heart settle. There, that I didn't wake up each day with that anxiousness, that unsteadiness, that unstableness in me that something was off. It wasn't immediate. It took a lot of heart-revealing conversations with God before I got there. But I did get there, to a place of wide-open space, unbound by my wounds, both the ones self-inflicted and the otherwise. And hopefully to a place where I think I am a different man because of it. And truth be told, when the memories of that time are evoked, brought back to memory, as they have been in preparation for today, in Psalm 38, I still have to go back to the process of direct, bold addressing of the Holy One. I'm just more speedy and happy to do so. So enough about me. Let's get to you. Grab your handouts. Psalm 38 helps us enter into the origin of our disorientation. That's what the letter B stands for, disorientation. Or the disorientation of others. So what I want you to do over these next few moments, and we do just have a few moments, I want you to ask the Spirit to lead you to one crisis of. A crisis of faith, a crisis of self, a crisis of relationship. Whether for you or for others, ask the Holy Spirit to lead you to one. And then allow the words of the psalm to evoke, to bring to mind an image, a memory, a feeling of a real experience of disorientation. Again, it may not be every word in that section. Maybe it's just one sentence. Maybe there's just one thing that pops out. A 
a, a, a description that kind of just brings to mind really quickly, a little flash, a memory, an image. Hold on to that. Let the Spirit lead you into that. Then, when that's there, add your voice to the psalm. Praying as boldly and even hyperbolically. And you can use the words that are there before you for the psalm. Make them your words. Give them your voice. But be as hyperbolic as you need to be. How you truly feel, how it feels like it really is as you address the Holy One. Inviting Him into the chaos. Not as a complaint but as an act of hope. Not as a charge, but as an act of hope in the awareness of your utter dependence. Pray candidly from the edge of neediness, ready to tell your story of failure. So pick one of the first three. When you're ready to pray into the candidness of it, you can use the, the beginning, that little part there that says, um, um, entering into the edge of neediness, you can use that to compel you into the prayer, or that could just be kind of a summation thing that kind of helps you kind of get started, a summary thing that helps you kind of get started. But when you tell the Lord your story of failure, after you tell the Lord your story of failure, say it, pray it as long as you need to until you're ready, you're prepared for communion, ready to read the last line before you receive what God has prepared for you. At that point, after you pray the last line, make your way up to the front and receive what's already been prepared for you. This is already made for you. You didn't do anything at all to get this ready, right? I mean, as silly as that is, it was here waiting for you. Come to the table, box, whatever it is, you know, already prepared. God's life given to you at your most needy. And then return to your seat, open up the, the little elements, pray the prayer on the stage. And then receive the elements. If you haven't done that, by the time you hear Chaz and Sam beginning to play, that's your signal to come up and go ahead and grab the communion elements. Make sense? All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have about six or so minutes to pray Psalm 38. Be led into prayer through Psalm 38. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a safe place to be known. Lord, that you long for us not to be in a place of disorientation, a place of death, but a place of life, and life whole and full and different. But again, your wisdom, you know that all that's old has to die before new can come to life. That it is through putting off the old that the new can be lived in full and forever. So I pray for my friends over these next few moments that whatever memories are evoked, as hard as they may be, may they find in your presence, Father, Lord, a sweet place of a table already prepared. Thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.